9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to a special episode of Deep State Radio. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you today from um, Chile, Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, we are joined today by uh, two good friends, one of our regulars from our podcast, Ed Luce of the Financial Times, who's in Washington, D.C. Hi, Ed. How are you? Top of the, top of the world. Thank you, David. Top of the world. <laughs> and um, Ed's a, a colleague at the Financial Times, with whom he does uh, um, a, a regular weekly rundown of, of things going on in Washington. Uh, and an old friend and an author and a very smart person, Rana Faruhar, who may be in Brooklyn or someplace like that. Yeah, Is, how Slope. are you, Rana? I'm good. I'm good. Park Slope, Brooklyn, David. Excellent. Um, uh, an excellent, an excellent uh, place to be. So um, speaking of excellent places to be, I thought we would start off talking a little bit about where U.S. economic policy is taking the U.S. economy. Uh, and obviously, there are a bunch of dimensions in this. We've just gotten quarterly um, uh, economic numbers that show us growing at about 6% on an annualized basis, which is not something we've done in a long, long time. Uh, and the IMF is projecting even better for the rest of the year. And the President of the United States you know, the, the guy that everybody thought was going to be kind of gray and conservative, um, Joe Biden, is 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 going big. You know, he is is proposed uh, plans. There are three sort of interlocking plans. The American uh, Rescue Plan, which has already passed one point nine trillion dollars. The American Jobs Plan, which is infrastructure plus, which is two point two five trillion dollars. And the American Families Plan, also around $2 trillion, which makes Joe Biden the $6 trillion man. He is proposing more cash infusion and a bigger economic um, uh, investment in the United States than we've seen at any time, well, since the New Deal. And probably on a lot of metrics, it's bigger than the New Deal. Now, it hasn't happened yet. But it does suggest that the, the, the U.S. could get a big um, kick in the economic keister from all this in a, in a good sense, a motivational sense. Um, you optimistic looking at all of this, Ron? You know, I am. Um, it's interesting because how we got here is, is, is very odd. You know, I mean, we've just had the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression. Um, prior to that, we had 10 years of money being thrown at the economy by the Federal Reserve, by central bankers, because we'd just come out of the great financial crisis. So, um, you know, many of us, myself included, thought we were probably going to be due for a big stock market correction and a slowdown. Um, thanks to all the new fiscal stimulus, which, you know, many of us have been hoping for, to be fair, for, for a long time. That's not going to happen. Um, 
But I do think it's going to be interesting to watch the divergence between Wall Street and Main Street. And what's what's so interesting is it could be that at some point uh, we'll get a stock correction and that won't actually mean that things are bad. It'll mean that things are good. You know, we're getting public spending on infrastructure. There are some higher taxes to pay for that. You know, you can already see the market sort of being a bit jittery about it. Um, but overall, if I were to look at what Biden has done as a, what do I think this is going to do for Main Street America over the next five, 10 years? I think it's great stuff. I mean, you know, the devil is going to be in the detail. And in fact, I write my column for, for this coming Monday on some of the challenges now that we've seen all these plans roll out. And, you know, vectorally, many of them are great and just what we need investment in human capital, uh, infrastructure, you know, thinking about tax reform, uh, rewarding work, not wealth. These are all really great things. Um, and this guy, it has to be said, is a political Yoda. I mean, he is moving the force of government around <laughs> in a way that, you know, I mean, anybody that thought he was going to be a doddering 78 year old has clearly been proven wrong. But I do think now we're getting to the tough part. We're getting to implementation. We're getting to trade-offs between stakeholder groups as the details roll out. And we're getting to what can he sell to the uh, US versus what can he sell to the world? Well, first of all, I think Yoda is actually hundreds of years old, but I'm not a, a Star Wars expert. Um, but he, but he, may, he may be heading in that direction. That is, that is for sure. Um, by the way, I, I should point out that this is one of those episodes where we do take questions from some of our members who are listening in. Um, uh, if you're one of those members and you're uh, in our, our, our webinar room, uh, you go down to where it says Q&A at the bottom of the Zoom uh, screen, and you can type in a question there. That's where I will see them, and I will fold them into the conversation um, seamlessly. Okay, I'll just read them uh, in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a couple of minutes. Uh, Ed, um, I, I'm, I'm interested in, in, in your reaction. I know that you are a man of a good heart and that you do wish well for the United States and you do like boldness, but I also know that there's sort of this lingering neoliberal inside of you who like big spending, you know, makes you a little uncomfortable. You still remember all of these sort of Larry Summers inflation worries, <laughs> um, you know, that's and, and I know it's kind of their, their little angel and a devil on either shoulder of yours. How's that battle coming out right now? Um, I, I won't I won't waste my answers by disputing the premise of your question. <laughs> <laughs> um, what 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 I would say is, yes, that there's a necessary stimulus. Um, uh, the uh, important reforms, such as particularly in the uh, families, American families plan, um, that will make it far easier for women in particular to stay in the labor force and to earn more in the labor force um, through having a better caring system for children and for old people. And these are important, deeply overdue reforms, investing in American physical infrastructure, having a national broadband plan, all of this is essential. Um, I think there's less structural reform going on than I would like to see. So it's not really the neoliberal within me that, that's critical here. It's the Rooseveltian in me that wants to see more structural reform. There's certainly more spending here than the New Deal. New Deal really wasn't that, that high spending early on. It was very reformist though, um, you know, with the creation of the Works um, Progress Administration, the birth of social security, the agricultural prices adjustment, all of these things change the nature of American capitalism. And what I would like to see is a capitalist reform 
project from the Biden administration. Some of it is there in the pipeline. For example, the PRO Act on um, the, the right to organize for labor, that is very important for shifting power back from capital to labor and, and get, giving labor workers leverage. Whether it will pass is another matter. Um, we've yet to see much in terms of competition policy. We do see some very good people appointed to the administration, many of whom Rana knows, you know, people like Tim Wu and Gary Gensler, um, you know, are very impressive people, and they've got and they've got plans that um, um, Lena Khan, of course, uh, that um, I would like to see crystallized. Um, I want to know whether shareholder capitalism is going to continue as it has been, um, and I'm not sure. I'm not sure what the answer to that is. So I'm looking for more structural reform in addition to the stimulus. You know, the thing about I, I think the neoliberal question is fascinating. And Ed, I know you and I have had some conversations with colleagues about this that I, I think for personally, I think we are in the post neoliberal world. In fact, I'm writing my next book about what that's going to look like. But one of the issues is we don't really have a unified field theory yet. And some people feel like, you know, it's hard to poke holes at neoliberalism without being able to kind of offer up something completely different. I mean, we know we have one world, two systems. We know we are not gonna go back to the mid 1990s. Um, both Democrats and Republicans are saying, you know what, we there's a fundamental problem between um, you know WTO free market capitalism and state run China. There's an issue between surveillance capitalism and liberal democracy. We know all those things, but there isn't sort of one easy Chicago school answer to this question. And I think that that's really got people feeling uh, uneasy about where things are going. You know, it's a good point, uh, Ron. And it reminds me of long ago when I was writing a book called Power Inc. And I was talking to you about it. And the punchline of the book was that we had gone from an era in which the debate was between communism and capitalism to an era in which it was competition between different visions of capitalism. And mm -hmm. that there was Anglo-American capitalism and there was sort of Northern European capitalism that had a bigger social safety net. There was uh, sort of big emerging market capitalism, but, you know, which is more populist like Brazil and like India. Mm -hmm. There's capitalism with Chinese characteristics, which is a still a different thing. And then there's even the kind of small state capitalism that works completely differently in a place like, you know, Chile or the UAE or New Zealand or Israel, where, you know, there are just fewer variables and you can, you can balance these things. And I think, you know, Ed, Rana makes a good point. I'm really interested in, 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 in Rana's book. I think that's extremely timely. One of the things that we've heard is, you know, Reaganomics is dead. Trickle down is dead. Joe Biden, yesterday was going after trickle down, you know, um, you know, 40 years later. Um, but it does seem like, you know, he's going to stick a stake through the heart of this one way or another, and we're going to have to move on to a new theory. Do you agree? And do you think that theory is going to be new? Or is it going to be a kind of a, a throwback to sort of Keynes and Roosevelt? Um, I think what we're going, I mean, if you look at Roosevelt, um, you know, he created essentially the, the um, American welfare state from scratch. I mean, it's impossible to emulate that. There's nothing more radical than introducing that into the American economy of the 1930s. And 
LBJ expanded it pretty dramatically with Medicare and Medicaid and the Great Society. Um, we then pretty much have nothing except Reaganism. Um, Clinton, you know, being a sort of third way version of it until Obamacare in terms of reform and expansion of that system, which was a very important reform um, and managed to survive the Trump era. And Biden will bolster it. I I'm, would like to have seen him announcing a public option um, in his speech on Wednesday night. He didn't. Um, and that doesn't mean to say he's not going to. But I'd like to see him um, provide that. Um, and I would very much like to see the American families um, pass. And if it does, that I think I would put it on a par with Obamacare. But in terms of structural reform, what we're seeing here is a strengthening of the safety net of long overdue, a very important strengthening of the safety net in the United States, a move towards uh, a much fairer, a more redistributive tax system um, or less pro sort of rich tax system. Um, which is very important, and it's very popular as well, by the way. Um, I don't think it's a new paradigm yet. Um, and that's why I would be slightly hesitant um, to say we're in a post-neoliberal world. I, I, I still see big corporations running stuff. And well, uh, well that, that's crucial. I mean, and I think that that's part of the reason why I would argue we are in a post-neoliberal world, because I think that the Biden administration recognizes uh, and has joined up thinkers that recognize, okay, if you look, and there's been research on this, if you look at the last 30 or 40 years in terms of where wealth has gone, it's essentially gone to China, to the state, uh, you know, to the state, but to, to, to labor and to the big banks and the big institutions that funnel, um, you know, the, the wealth that comes from the arbitrage of cheap labor. And it's gone to large multinationals. Those are the two major beneficiaries. So what you have is sort of, you know, the Washington consensus, which is broken, the Beijing consensus, which is kind of evolving, and we probably don't want to be part of it, um, at least in the way it seems to be looking under Xi, and the Facebook consensus. And that is what I think is very interesting about this administration. I think that they do recognize that, look, there's two main winners of this current neoliberal system. And if you go back, it, it's so interesting because, you know, the neoliberals that, that created the post-1930s world they wanted to tampen down fascism by connecting global markets. That was the whole point. They thought if they could connect capital, that that was going to crush nationalism. We've now come so far, you know, the pendulum always swings. We've come so far that with Trump, we got to a situation where the connection of global capital and the ability of global capital to fly over everything else was actually creating fascism. So I think that that's what this administration understands. And I think that the work not wealth slogan is, is just a perfect pithy summary of that. Um, I, again, I'm not saying all the dots are connected yet, but I think we are really getting to a new worldview. You know, it's interesting because I was looking closer at Ed's shoulders doing this than the little devil and the angel. And it's actually a small Elizabeth Warren on one side <laughs> and a small Larry Summers on the other shoulder. And, and, and it reminds me of, and by the way, I'm glad Elizabeth Warren is winning. It reminds me of, do you remember the old MTV celebrity death match where the, you know, these two claymation figures would get in a ring and beat each other to death? And, you know, and at the end of this, Elizabeth Warren is beating Larry Summers to death with his own arms and legs. And I'm, you know, frankly, I'm glad to see it. Um, but uh, I, I do think, you know, one of the reasons up. that, I want yeah. to, I don't want it to be quick. I want it to be slow. Slow, slow, yeah. 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 But I yeah. think one of the ways that it's manifesting itself 
uh, it's going to manifest itself hasn't even happened yet. And that's this contingent of Elizabeth Warren uh, supporters. And, and, I, and by the way, I say that as a compliment, who are being put into the antitrust system. And we haven't even seen Ed, the moves of this administration uh, in the vein of antitrust with regard to the big tech companies. Um, and and I'm, I'm, I sort of expect that to happen to you. Uh, I do. I mean, I'm, I'm keenly awaiting, um, you know, what competition policy will look like, not just in regard to tech companies, but the whole economy. Um, uh, you know, there is concentration across many sectors. Um, so that's, that's going to be a very important piece. If this is going to move on to the reformist, um, deeper reformist sort of level, I'd like to see this administration. But just to sort of underline, you know, one of Larry's, Larry's criticisms is about inflation potential. I don't really have much of a view on that. We'll see. Um, the other is that the infrastructure piece is too small. Um, so, uh, you know, I think his criticism is not necessarily a neoliberal one at all. Um, and I don't necessarily agree with the inflation one. So these, I've got more than two shoulders here. It's, 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 this is uh, more like Carly. I've got about six arms waving. <laughs> wow. Wow. That, now that's an image that is frightening to everybody. Let me switch over to the questions we've got from the audience here. They're going to come in a little bit of... Uh, you know, sort of perhaps out of out of sequence, but I'm, I'll just throw them out there. I'll start with one for you, Rana. And of course, you can chime in on these as, as we go. Um, and I'm just going to read it outright because it's a long one. And, and uh, uh, so we can sort of synthesize it afterwards. But it says here, central banks all over the world have loosened their monetary policy during the 2008 financial crisis, but have never really tightened it up until the coronavirus crisis hit us. Instead, on top of that um, policy, governments all over the world have put in place packages that pumped even more money into the financial system. So where has all the money um, gone back from before coronavirus and, and the Liquidity Act uh, added ever since? Inflation has never picked up. How can that be? Uh, great, great question. So totally agree with the point about the amount of money being pumped in by central bankers post financial crisis, but also pre financial crisis, you know, or the, 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 the trend of easy money. I mean, if you look at it, central bankers have basically from the 1980s onward been artificially um, lengthening the recovery cycles. And a lot of people, including me, would argue that that's actually not a good thing. It sort of makes everybody more comfortable for longer periods of time, but it gets rid of the creative destruction that you need maybe in smaller, less destructive bursts to kind of clean out the system and, and create um, you know, new businesses and shift the economy in a more gentle way. Instead, we get these long periods where you know we have Goldilocks and then boom, suddenly big bad wolf, financial crisis, corona. Um, the, the big question, so why haven't we seen more inflation? Well, I think technology is playing a major disinflationary effect that we don't fully understand yet, in part because the data is just, it, it's very diffi difficult to collect. It's not being collect well, collected well. I mean, if you look just at what's gonna happen, and our colleague, Sarah O'Connor has written very well about this, um, what's gonna happen to the globalization of white collar labor post pandemic? massive. I mean, all of our bosses suddenly realized that, hey, there's, you know, we kind of knew some of you could do your jobs from home, but now we realize, boy, those jobs can be done from anywhere. And, you know, a lot of that is going to be globalized. 
At the same time, there's going to be an opportunity, you know, as I put it in a recent column, you can, and may, I may have stolen this from Tom Friedman. If so, I apologize, Tom, but you know, you can do the job either from Bangalore or Bangor, right? That um, you can move to a Zoom town as a young millennial and buy a cheaper house, get something for $80,000 and do your job now, work from home. Um, but your job might also be outsourced to an intelligent person in a cheap labor country um, at a much higher level. All these things are happening fast. It's impossible to know where the vectors are gonna be. Um, but I think, you know, recoveries of the kind that we're seeing right now, this is a very digital recovery. So if you look uh, at the number of the, the new business applications in the U.S. are actually up about 20% this year. So a lot of businesses being created, most of them digital. They will not be hiring nearly as many people. So right now we have this artificial inflation that is really about the, the stimulus effect. Once the plug gets pulled on that, I don't think, first of all, durable goods demand is going to go down. I and mean, we've got this kind of buildup in the system right now, but I'm not worried about some super cycle in commodities inflation. I'm not worried about um, you know, overheating, as Larry would argue, I'm actually worried that we're going to continue to see more disinflationary effects from technology. And how are we going to employ people? What's that going to look like? And P.S., that's one of the reasons I think Biden is so right to start connecting the dots on healthcare and childcare as infrastructure. The only kind of capital that matters now is human capital. Right. And I think, you know, uh, there are people out there, people who've written about this um, talking about uh, not just the kind of structural reform that the government imposes, but the structural and reform that progress imposes. And um, uh, so, uh, uh, you know, it's, 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 it seems very likely that, you know, 20 years from now, um, a job looks very different from what it does even today, even, even what you're describing and people are working three days a week. And that's that just, you know, creates an entirely different social contract. And completely out of left field, different kind of question. Um, is cryptocurrency bullshit? Oh God, uh, I, I'm the wrong person to, to ask that question of. Um, You're too busy in investing in NFTs? Uh, no, I'm, I'm not an <laughs> investor in any form, which is why I'm not very qualified <laughs> to answer it. Um, I honestly, I'm good. I'm, although I'm, uh, you know, I have a bit of the blarney in me, I'm going to sort of plead ignorance and not answer that. I, I can, I have thoughts on crypto if you want to hear them, not to grab the mic, but um, go, ahead, um, go ahead. But I know Ed is secure enough that whenever I grab the mic, he's very polite. Um, no, I actually think crypto is not bullshit. Um, I think Bitcoin's very speculative. I mean, you know, I, I look at crypto, let's, let's talk about private crypto and then central bank backed crypto, which is a whole different deal. Um, private crypto, I see it like the auto market at the turn of the century, where you know there's going to be a transition from horse and buggy to cars, but there's 800 car companies and you don't know which one's going to win. So I would never put money in Ethereum or, or Bitcoin or any of these things, because I think it's totally unclear what's going to happen. That said, it's really interesting to look at the way in which Bitcoin is picking up some of the slack that gold used to have amongst investors that are worried about this sort of Weimar Republic possibility in the US as tons and tons of money goes into stimulus that we don't know if it's gonna be productive or not yet. Um, that's fascinating. That to me says, not that Bitcoin is gonna be the thing, but that, that there's a fundamental understanding that yes, we keep pouring money on things, but we don't really have a solution yet. 
And that secondly, we are moving to uh, a change from paper currency to digital currency. Lots and lots of people want that. There are 22 different global central banks experimenting with digital right now. Gary Gensler, who's the new SEC chief, was studying cryptocurrency at MIT before he took this job. Um, there's, they're already running in New York State, actually, up in Albany. They're running um, experiments with sort of public digital wallets. And this is something that is going to be fascinating. I'm like totally geeking out on this right now because you could imagine if you had a digital dollar and let's say we were all interacting with the Fed and the financial, the commercial banking system was no longer really needed, which also PS, Jamie Dimon kind of said that in his most recent investor letter that they were at risk of being disintermediated by fintech, either public or private backed. Um, you could imagine everybody having their digital wallet and monetary policy could suddenly become much more targeted. So not only could you helicopter drop money to restaurant workers, you know, a year ago, because you would know who they are. Now, whether you think that's a little like too big state, deep state, <laughs> that's, that's another thing. But you could, you could start to have real geographical differences between how you treat monetary policy and fiscal policy in California versus Kentucky. That's really interesting. Well, no, and you could actually have geographical differences between um, how you treat monetary policy in uh, Park Slope and Borum Hill in Brooklyn, because Park Slope may move with Brooklyn Heights and Borum Hill may move, move with Prospect Heights. And, and, you know, to me, that's kind of the birth not, uh, of, of, of nanoeconomics. In other words, Ooh, I like super- Did you pick that up? No, I've written about that before, but, but, but super targeted, super targeted economics that uses big data and fintech to, yeah. to you know, because why, why on earth would we create a stimulus for the U.S. economy right. when the U.S. economy is actually millions of different economies that don't correlate, when you should be creating stimuli for subsets of the economy that correlate? And this is exactly what you were going to have said about crypto, isn't it? Pretty much precisely, but uh, I thought I'd see. <laughs> yeah, no, it's just... <laughs> so polite. He's always like trying yeah. to make me look smarter than I yeah. am. He, he does that. He does that for all of us. Um, uh, no, he's a very he's an elegant guy. Despite the story I saw today on Twitter, which I found absolutely horrifying, that one third of all members of the United Kingdom wash their sheets once a year. Yeah. <laughs> I I feel I feel I feel slurred by by this statistic. <laughs> yeah. David, have you taken diversity training in in cleanliness, geographical cleanliness levels? I don't know. It, that's you know, that's an interesting. It's a subset of diversity training we don't offer in um, in in uh, the TRG Media Company, which we, we're all part of here for a moment, because we're the smallest media company in the world. Um, uh, <laughs> So, 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 Ed, there was another question here, um, and it harkens back to what we were talking about, but I think I owe it to the person who showed up to read the question. And that is, is the change of direction in the U.S. likely to bring back Keynesianism uh, 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 internationally, including in Bretton Woods institutions? Uh, depends what you mean by Keynesianism. If you, if you mean, um, you know, moving back to linked currencies, no, I don't think so. You know, I, I think um, the the, the post-Bretton Woods world is here to stay. And maybe some, some you know, uh, of what both of you have been saying about cryptocurrency is going to be relevant to the new world. 
But if you mean fiscal policy, um, then sure, I think Keynesianism is very much back. I think it's been back really since 2008, even though, you know, the Tea Party after 2010 stopped it in its tracks. Um, and the Cameron government in 2010 as well stopped it in Britain in its tracks. Germany's reaction to the 08 crisis was monetarist. It was classically German. It made the European crisis worse. This time round, during the pandemic, Germany's shifted a lot more towards the Keynesian side, not nearly enough, but a great deal more. So what I call that sado-monetarism, um, it's really covered uh, <laughs> that's awesome. the European central banks sort of philosophy. That's, that's been diluted to quite some degree. Um, and that's a very welcome shift. Um, um, and yeah, I, say this, I say this as a non-neoliberal who washes his sheets frequently. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, I, I guess we love the progressive side of you. And by the way, it's well known that that Keynes never washed his sheets. Um, it's it's probably he probably people sleeping on them too, from what I hear. He, he yeah, brushed his way. teeth. He brushed his teeth once a week, whether he needed to or not. Yeah. <laughs> I was waiting for a government program to come and wash his sheets. Um, uh, so another one of these, uh, Rana, would infrastructure projects that included some version of a federal job guarantee, like the WPA that had a $15 minimum wage, effectively create that as the default minimum wage? Or to put it another way, if you've got all of these big giant government contracts and programs going out, Biden could say, and, and has said something in this vein, I don't know how far the, the policy extends, you know, if you're if you're a federal contractor or a federal agency, you have to pay $15 minimum wage. And with all this money washing out into the system, that's gonna that's gonna have a broader effect. It, is it not, or would it not? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I I think 15 is gonna be less impactful at a national level than people think, because frankly, there's already a lot of places that that are paying 15, you know, there's some that it's, it's gonna, it's gonna impact for sure. I think what's more interesting and potentially more impactful is this explicit support of union labor, this, you know, using uh, union labor with a stroke of a pen on all federal contracts, using uh, in the new, in the new uh, jobs plan saying $400 billion in home health services have to be provided by SEIU laborers. That's really interesting. Um, and depending on how it rolls out and if it's done efficiently, it could be profound in the sense that it's going to really shift the dynamics um, in ways that will be good uh, for diversity reasons and political reasons. I mean, those workers are gonna be mostly black and brown women. It's gonna change their, um, their financial profiles overnight. Um, it's also going to, really create a tailwind behind unions in a way that we haven't seen in decades. And I think that to me, that's kind of a bigger deal longer term than 15 as, as a number. So, Ed, you know, I saw, uh, we've, we've only got five minutes here, so I'll ask you and then Rana, you can respond to this. This will be our last question. But um, I saw a, a tweet today from the New York Times about Biden's um, American Families Plan, which said, referred to the plan as something like the Bi a Biden spending and taxation plan. You know, it didn't say 
Biden's plan to invest. It didn't say Biden's fully paid for plan to invest, um, but it sort of broke it down into two things that are sort of the political hot buttons in it. Spending, oh my God, we're going to spend. Um, and then if you say, well, we're going to pay for it with taxes, oh my God, we're going to raise taxes. Well, we haven't touched on the tax side of it really much in this conversation. Biden's been very, very careful to say no tax hikes on anybody making over $400,000 a year. And the tax hikes on companies really only bring us back a few years um, uh, to what the tax hikes were like under George W. Bush. And American companies, you know, we have to be aware, don't pay the nominal rate. They pay a percentage of it. American companies are paying a real tax rate of something closer to 11%, which is one of the lowest tax rates in the world. And, you know, the Republicans seem to think they can go and pull out the old playbook and say taxation is bad, big government is bad, it's part of the Reagan thing. And the American people seem like they've moved on. And if you look at the recent polling, the American people are like like 70%, 80% of the American people are like, no, raising taxes on the rich and corporations okay with me. So do you think we're, we're, we're seeing a change there? Uh, I do. And if you look at the polling um, for uh, Biden's infrastructure spending, um, uh, you get um, high support um, for it. But then follow up question, um, if it's paid for by raising taxes on the, the, the wealthy in corporations, the support rises. So there is um, um, both an intrinsic support for the public investments Biden wants to do, but even more support for the way he's proposing to pay for them, which is making corporations pay the taxes they've been avoiding and evading. Um, for many years. One of the elements that I'm very pleased to see, and I've written about this, um, is the $80 billion increase to the IRS budget that he's proposing, um, which will get a, um, a $700 billion return. So pretty much 10 to 1 return there in terms of investing in the IRS's capacity. It is morally indefensible to have an, a, a tax collecting, a federal tax collecting agency that is as likely to audit people claiming earned income tax credit, people on $30,000 and below basically, as it is the top 1%. And that's the situation we've been reduced to with the IRS. So I'm pleased he's also starting with the premise, let's enforce existing taxes. Um, in terms of tax reform, maybe that will come. What, what he's proposing is to raise the headline rate and raise on corporations and, and then raise capital gains tax. There isn't the sort of broadening and elimination of loopholes that you would get with a, a, a full tax um, overhaul. Um, I would like to see that. I would just add one quick thing. I know we've only got a minute or two. I wonder, you know, California often leads in terms of where policy is gonna go. The fact that California budgets are being bolstered by the stock hikes of some of these companies. You know, Gabriel Zuckman, who's a scholar at Berkeley just put out a very interesting white paper on should we actually have a tax on, on stock gains amongst companies? Because if you look at the process of financialization, unless that whole thing is turned back, which is tough to do, you're still going to have a situation where companies are going to, you know, the prices are going to be going up, 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 particularly if there's more and more low rates and easy money in the system. Maybe government should get a slice of that. It could do a lot for the budget. Excellent, excellent point. Um, uh, look, I wish we could do this forever, and I'm going to try and get you guys to come back and do it periodically, because 
you're you're both great together and you're very smart and people obviously should read your columns and follow you when you are in media of any sort. But what the people out there don't know is that in the whole world, uh, you're two of my favorite people. And so I really, I, I really, you know, enjoy um, being stimulated by your brains, which are constantly looking for what's new. And there are not a lot of people out there who are doing that. There are not a lot of people who are out there trying to find the next big idea. And Ed and Rana are among them. Um, and so that's why we're very lucky to have them. If you want to find out more of what we've got coming up on the DSR network, we've got five podcasts a week, including two deep state radio podcasts, the spy talk podcast, one-on-one or one-on-two podcasts like this, where you can post questions. And of course, uh, at the end of each week, we've got the secret life of cookies podcast where people bake and talk about the world. This week's episode, by the way, has Simon Majumdar from the food network. Um, who's also a brilliant, fascinating guy. Go to the dsrnetwork.com, find out what we're doing, sign up to become a member, um, and uh, and join us again for conversations like this. And we hope, Ed and Rana, you'll join us again uh, real soon. Bye-bye, everybody, and thanks very much. <laughs>